Beer in a Movie, the podcast where we talk about two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies. Sometimes achieving outstanding pairings and other times giving ourselves the opportunity to wash the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I am your one of your hosts, Dave Gurney, and I am here with Joe Hilliard and Carlos Cooper. Wonderful to see you guys this week. Uh, we're going to be talking about a couple films that were made available to all of us, whether whether you realized it or not, um, via Amazon just recently with the uh, rescheduling or the or the cancellation of the South by Southwest Film Festival. And we'll get into those titles in a moment and, and what we thought about them. But before we do that, we're going to try to stay on top of things by getting some beer in our glasses. And our first beer is actually a pretty special beer, at least in terms of this podcast. Does anybody care to elaborate on why it's so special? Uh, yeah, Carlos, cue the uh, celebratory music now. We are <sighs> drinking right now our 200th beer together hey. on these on these airwaves. Uh, and so, yeah, I picked this one up. Uh, I think we've made it an unwritten rule. Let's write it down that we're going to do a local beer at these major 100 celebrations. So I picked this up. It's a brewer we had before back on the Smoking and the Bandit episode when we went to that local beer festival. This is B&J's Brew House. Is that what they're calling themselves now? Yeah. That's what I, I want to make sure. Brew Pub. Brew Pub. And they are um, one of the oldest imported beer, craft beer, landmark businesses in our hometown so we're gonna try their vix poteet strawberry blonde ale i uh i texted the brewmaster today and asked them asked him what the abv was and uh he reported back promptly because in the local beer scene you've got those kinds of relationships that's me vamping until i find the number it is 7.9 so cheers guys 200 200 beers. That's you know, last, a lot of beers. It's it's a lot of beers from all over the, the country, mostly, and a few and from all over the world. Um, this B&J's beer, and I, you know, you're going to relate to this no matter where you live, but this B&J's beer is from one of our local breweries. It's uh, an annual beer that they put out in our neck of the woods, less than 100 miles away from where we live, are the, some of the best strawberries grown in the world. Grown in Texas, certainly. The town is called Poteet. So they make a run to Poteet to get these local strawberries and put it in their Blondale once a year. And here, this is this year's offering. Yeah, this is one that I look forward to every year. I love a strawberry blonde ale. Um, one of the things, that, one of the styles, I guess, that kind of got me back into craft beer was the Shiner Strawberry Blonde, and which is a, a fine beer and all. But it's nice when you get to have one that was brewed here locally. Well, I mean, yeah, they uh, like I said, uh, no matter where you live, there's some brewery that is going to go out of their way to get local um, fruit. And B&J's was one of the, if not the first ones to do that here in town. Um, but, you know, last year at this time, you guys will, will remember, I went in and created our spreadsheet because I needed data for our hundredth beer to ask you guys some basic questions uh, about our journey. So last year I asked y'all a bunch of questions. What was the average ABV of all the beers we'd had in the first hundred? You remember? I do remember you asking that question. Uh, if and I, do you remember the answer to the, uh, I, I do. It was 8.8%. Uh, I was going to say 8.65. Yeah. And so this year I'm rather at this occasion, a hundred more beers in we've dropped to 8.6. What? And right, and now I'm curious. I was going to throw it back to y'all. Is maintaining any kind of ABV number a really important part of this journey we're on together? I'm gonna. I mean, I personally will say no, even though like I'm always, you know, fucking harping about. Oh, it's got to be over five percent or it's water, which is obviously just like a bid or whatever. Because there are a lot of good beers that are under five percent. Um, but I'm kind of surprised because. I mean, I know we've been getting a little heavier into like the sour game, as we've discussed in some recent episodes, and those tend to be more in the four, five, six range. But we've also had some big bad stouts over the last year. I would say. I feel like these pandemic 
episodes have thrown us off a little bit because when we get those higher ABV beers, it tends to be those bombers yeah. that we're sharing. And it's tougher to get our hands on three legit bombers of, or even want to do that, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, as much as I like high ABV beer, I don't want to have a 12 percenter, 22 ounces of it myself sitting at home recording. I think I'm going to, you know, pass out by the end of the episode. So For sure. uh, I, th- I, I have a feeling that had we checked the average just for March, we might've been closer to the 8.8 or, or whatever we were, um, you know, but hey. The highest octane beer we've had that's over 10% ABV was a 12%, the peanut butter cup uh, stout collaboration between Untitled Art and Hidden Springs. We haven't had that anything was at, higher that, than that? That was at 12. We haven't had anything above 10 since then. That was episode 80, just nine oh, episodes since ago. then. But yeah. over the entirety of the show? Oh, no, our highest ABV is an 18% that's from what one I, of that's what I thought. One of Dogfish Head's uh, you know, hazard caps. I can't remember which oh, one it was. Oh, yeah, exactly. the 120 but, minute probably. But you know, talking about local, of course, the, num- the most breweries in any one state is Texas. That's where we live. We like to not only it, – it's easier access, but it also gives us the ability to try some of our favorite regional and statewide breweries, some of the special things that they do. That has remained the same. Texas with 59 total beers in our 200 count. Got to stay true. Got to stay, yeah. California, Maine, New York, Oregon, the top five. But I had a couple questions I was going to ask y'all. I don't think y'all know the answers to these. Uh, Can you think of the brewery that we've enjoyed the most beers from that one brewery? St. Arnold. No, that's not the right answer. But it's close. I feel like we did do some St. Arnold's. Uh, That's not a bad guess. Can I tell you, you won't be able to answer it because it's a four-way tie. It's uh, <laughs> Ingenious, St. Arnold, Lorelei, and Prairie. And if I remember what we're going to do on the, later in this episode, Prairie's about to break the tie. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. So Man, Prairie got... will be our most drank. That's that's pretty, why. Yeah. Okay, so here's a question I've never asked you before because I've crunched new data, right? What style of beer do we drink the most of? Uh, I'm, I'm going to get, you, you know, you got your, you got your Berliner Weiss, you've got your IPA, you got yeah. your Pilsner. It's very broad category. Stout, sour. Yeah, I'm going to say stout. Mm. David. It's a good guess. I'm going to go with uh, IPA. It's a statistical tie. Those two <laughs> things, 33% each. Mm. Uh, we've had one more IPA than a stout, but otherwise it is a dead tie. Those clearly are our two favorite styles. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then, and then the other third is rounded out by about you know eighteen different styles: saison, porter, pale ale, etc. Uh, yeah, because we definitely we're not a pilsner heavy podcast, that's for sure. We haven't no. had very many of those. We've had two, only two. Two. Uh, we got to get we'll the Hans pills that. in here. We'll, we'll get, yeah, we'll get some more in soon. Anyway, just, uh, it's fun to look back at the accomplishments. We talk about movies a majority of the time on the podcast. That's what yeah. takes up a most. But the beers are just as important. So cheers, guys. 200. Cheers. 200. All right. So uh, as I said at the beginning uh, of the episode, we, we're talking about a couple films that were made available to, as I said, all of us. These, these were freely available for a limited period of time. Listening to this podcast episode now, you can no longer access these films, and we apologize. We tried to promote a little on social media to let people know we were doing this. But um, in that little window of time, a couple weeks, maybe 10 days, uh, a selection of the films that had been chosen for South by Southwest, uh, which is a festival that takes place every year in Austin. There's a music component. There's a multimedia. But the film festival is renowned and it's it's been a launch pad for a lot of great films so we wanted to pick a couple of those films to look at um, and consider because here we are with all of you stuck at home looking for those entertainment options and here are two very or you know a selection of very recent release films some that um, may never even get wide distribution here in the states otherwise the first one we're going to talk about is a film called Le Choc de Futur or as you would 
translate it, the shock of the future. It is, uh, I'll just synopsize it briefly and then we can get into it. Um, the, the basic idea is you have a young woman who is kind of an aspiring uh, musician or producer who, who's kind of doing some commercial work, but, um, but is also staying at a friend's apartment who has access to where the apartment is uh, sort of outfitted with these great, uh, of that moment, it's set in the late 70s, um, state-of-the-art synthesizers and, and and other kinds of recording equipment big and so sense yeah so she she's sort of aspiring towards this new sound right the future she wants she wants to hear the future she wants to make something um unique and and trend setting and so it's kind of her struggle to balance that yearning that she has for doing something new and novel with the industry you know, the people she works with, the people she's trying to sell this music to, um, and they're not exactly disdain, but they're disinterest in something that they haven't already heard before. Um, that That's a brief capsule description. I mean, we can get into some of the, the finer points, but, uh, but it's a fairly tightly focused film in that we really do stick with one character pretty much through the entirety of it and her interactions with these people. I know that of the three of us, the musical history snapshot of this film from the set design to the look of the gear is, is up you two guys alley in a way that it isn't mine. You two are the music freaks. And I was so looking forward to hearing y'all's thoughts on this movie because one subset of people that's really going to enjoy this movie are music historians because of just the, um, you know, the, the, how the gear of the time, the gear porn, like just the, the, the obsession over this, what would now, if we got versions of, it's like those IBM computers that took up a whole floor of an office building. Like all of that gear required to make the first wave, as this film presents the story, of synthesized music. And, and I got to tell you, without y'all's vast history in music that I just don't have, I believed everything this film told me, the story that it was telling about the time period and the gear and the music it was going to create and how it was different and how music producers didn't understand it, but artisans did. I'd love to get y'all's take on that aspect of this movie. It's a, it's a, it's a big part of the film. I loved seeing all of like the modular synths that were in the film. Like, and when that guy comes over with the Roland CR 78, which is the beatbox, I mean, like, that was that really was as it actually happened in musical history, like the first quote unquote like drum machine that ever existed. And it like was it has it was a huge deal. You know, that you could have a drummer that without having a person playing drums. And it wasn't known for having the best sounds. It wasn't known for really sounding like a drum kit or anything like that. I think the Lin drum kind of becomes more prominent as it's introduced afterwards. Um, but it has a very distinct character the way the Roland 808 would later and was so revolutionary to being able to make music by yourself in a full more full kind of capacity um and so those details are really really well done in this movie um i really like that i david is a little more dialed into this kind of era of electronic music more than i am in fact the whole time i was thinking of um susan chiani is that her name and she's thanked at the end of the film, which was great to see, as was Wendy yeah. Carlos and, like, you know, a bunch of other uh, female electronic musicians that deserve to be uh, praised. But um, the thing that I was wondering, and I was doing a little bit of Googling as the film was going on, um, like the throbbing, the throbbing Gristle 45 that her, I'm assuming, kind of seemed like an American friend that was living in Paris, um, Brings up, I, I googled it to see like did this really come out is this like really like of the time or are they like kind of kind of manipulating the timeline a little bit to fit the narrative and nope it came out in 1978 which is exactly when the movie set but I guess the thing that the larger point that I'm getting to which I think David will have a better answer to is I'm curious how resistant people were to this type of music at this time like how uphill of a battle really was it to get electronic 
dance and pop music into the hands of people via the record label system. Yeah, I, w- I wish I could say that I have a, as deep a knowledge as, as I would even like on, on that topic. I mean, I do think it was it, with anything that's like a new sound, I think it's going to be a struggle. There's going to be people who kind of dismiss it. Um, it had found its way into disco by then, right? Yeah. It starts with her listening to uh, Cerrone's Supernature, um, which is definitely, and you had Giorgio Moroder making, you know, the Donna Summer songs that yeah. plenty of people know that, you know, from the, it, the mid to late 70s. So it had crept into some dance music, um, and you know, in particular disco. And there were people like Jean-Michel Jarre who were doing stuff in France that was a little bit more meditative and, you know, Tangerine Dream. And, and I was going to uh, say, like, at, the, at this time, like, Popova and like Ashra Temple are yeah. like around and doing stuff. I mean, that's a little more I mean, ethereal and ambient. But... Yeah, yeah. And none of them were like chart toppers, no. right? I mean, at least, certainly not in the UK or the US. So, so I mean, I think this was still an underground music in a, in a pretty significant way. Uh, I, I mean, it was. Pretty... Wait, David, l- let me interrupt you. That American friends that comes over and brings records. There is no internet. There is no Spotify. There is no Apple Music. You just you're trading records. So she's getting how many records did he, they play together in their little time in her apartment? It's five, six records. Listen yeah. to this new thing. Listen to this new thing. Like I said earlier, David, go, go, back to you. Uh, completely believable. Yeah. No, it, it, it was for me too. I mean, it, it felt like a very genuine kind of exchange that would have been going on in a moment like that, where you would have the guy who, I mean, he was obviously the music obsessed collector who was going around just trying to find sounds and all the record shops that he would inhabit. And, and I too took him to be an American, but he obviously travels around the world, right? He's talking about a music shop in Japan. He goes to, he's talking about, so, you know, uh, I, I love that scene, the, the, the scene when he comes over and is, yeah, playing. agree. Completely agree. To me, it just rang very true as the kind of exchange that goes on between people. You know, I have this record hound going to all these shops, picking up everything he can, bringing it to people who he thinks are going to like it. You know, hearing him play that throbbing gristle track, the Axak Mabul, which I had not heard of. That 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 was news to me, and now I now I need to go track that one down. But the suicide was probably my favorite, just because I do love suicide, and to hear her kind of dismiss them outright because it you know yes. just wasn't her sound. That yeah. was that was the part that. Uh, deeply offended me uh, it was i was i was in such a state of disbelief that that especially that that particular record you know it that's yeah. not like a nothing record you know that's like a you know a no. kind of touchstone of that sound you know like that's one that you know people look for when they're looking for suicide records you know or for synth pop records whatever and then when she was like oh i don't like this at all i was like what <laughs> Well, it is it is such a rough aggressive approach to synthesizers. Yeah, that uh, sure. it, I could buy it, given where she was kind of going. She was more of a pop pop songwriter, yeah. but uh, but it, but it, I loved that scene. I I loved a lot of the exchanges that she was having with people throughout the film. You, you know. Joe, you kind of started out this conversation by saying you were curious to hear what we had to say about it, being that we were so soaked in music and and maybe the history of it and, and the popularization of it and stuff, which is true. And knowing that about myself, as I was watching it, I was actually thinking, I wonder if Joe is going to like this at all, because how does this play if you're not somebody who's kind of obsessed with music. It's a very insular kind of film. I mean, like I said, it's very restricted to her. It almost, all of it takes place in her apartment, this apartment that she's apartment sitting or or staying at. Subletting or whatever. Yeah, I mean, there is a moment where she leaves the apartment with somebody else and they do kind of go out and, you know, sort of Paris at night. But that's a pretty short sequence in a film that, you know, mostly takes place in one apartment. How did it play to you as just a story? Did you all say that, you know, I don't know if you mentioned this up top, but it's, it's a day in the life film. It's a 24 hour film. And it's not the first one we've done, uh, you know, back in episode 84, the last one we did was empire records. It happens in the course of 24 hours. So you have to establish the characters quickly. You have to build a reason to stick with these people. You know, you have to do it quick because it's not a cut of two weeks time. You have to like the way they talk. You have to like the words they say. And one series that does this beautifully for me is the Sunrise Sunset, you know, Richard Linklater series. And for me, 
and not to that standard. Let me be clear, not to the link that that standard. This movie completely did it for me. It's the set direction of the apartment. It's the parade of characters that come into it. It's the the gear porn. I don't know exactly what I'm looking at, but they they did it really well. The cigarette smoke and how it lingers in the frame. And then I'll tell you, David, when you do leave her apartment, where you're going is to the party where she's going to debut this track that she's been spontaneously creating all day. And it's that same successful formula, but with 60 minutes or 70 minutes of plot built up to that moment. There's stakes in where she goes. And then the walk home and she gets into the fight with her significant other. But, you know, I've been in those fights where the fight, what they're fighting about is not even what they're fighting about. They're fighting about the uh, emotional pressure release after having such an important night to her career then you got that disco star like redemption scene where everything's going to be okay and then you got her need to escape and go create some more this film it wasn't up to the level of before sunrise but this movie is one to see and i hope that as you said david it finds a life uh with the um complete removal of the film festival system from this year's distribution party how was that answer <laughs> that was good it was good to hear i mean I, I i genuinely i mean i felt like it was a film that would compel me even if i wasn't really a music nerd and and, and really just excited to see a film try to take on this kind of funny moment in the evolution of electronic music and um so I, I was really impressed by it. I really enjoyed it. But it's also nice to hear that it plays out as kind of a night as a good narrative, even if you're in. So we, we haven't mentioned yet. I mean, the, the star here, Amorowski, uh, from, you know, the family of I had no idea going into it. That, you know, I, I, we picked the film. We were watching it. It was more based on the synopsis. And then to realize that I'm watching the granddaughter of uh, uh, Alejandro uh it's pretty cool. I mean, and, and she seems like a pretty top-notch act in her own right. I would be excited to see more work. I don't know that I've seen her in anything before. Episode 79 is our Jodorowsky episode, and if you haven't listened to that, go back immediately. I knew that, I knew she was an actress. I knew that there was, like, an actress in the lineage of, you know, the extended Jodorowsky family or whatever. Um, but I saw... I saw it in the credits and I was like, there's no way that's not her. Right. And so I immediately did the, did the Googling, you know? Uh, but yeah, I thought she was great too. I hope that this gets some kind of something go like distribution or like whatever, because I hope I can watch it literally anywhere other than mm -hmm. Amazon prime, because for some reason in my house, that is the only streaming service that has really serious like lag and buffering issues. I mean, there was a 10 to 15 minute stretch of this movie where the sound was at least five full seconds behind the video. Wow. And it's only through like the prime app thing on like your smart TV or whatever. Cause I could pull it up on my laptop and watch it that way. And it was fine. But it was really, especially because it's in another language, you know, so you're like, when there's two characters talking to each other, like back and forth, and, and you're trying to discern important. everyone's voice, and the subtitles are happening before the actual talking is happening, I mean, it's just very difficult to, very difficult to follow at times. But all that being said, I did really like this movie a lot, um, and I'm glad that it was the one we picked. I think it was... In our discussion of it, it was I feel like it was the one that we all were kind of had intuitively said this should be the one, and it turns out we all felt that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that if any if it if there's a way to watch it at some point in the future, everybody should do it, especially if you like electronic music uh, or you know like listening to it, creating it, like whatever. Um, yeah. Or interesting good. characters being interesting. I mean, ultimately, I yeah. Mean, no, I mean, it, it definitely does hold up without that, obviously. The parade the, the parade of these characters that come, the economy that they use, that one set, and oh, how yeah. many, and, and the, the plot that they can create in there. You know, I've seen some, it's got a 57, I think, on Rotten Tomatoes, and I think that those are people that have no, like, they just don't have joy in their life. Those are the best movies, though. 
I I will stand the 50, the, the, I will stand late, by the, the fifty to like sixty five percent rated movies on Rotten Tomatoes are my favorite movies. Like those are the ones that I want to see. Like if I if I go to Rotten Tomatoes and I see that it's anywhere in the nineties, fine, I'll watch it, I guess. But I'm much less excited about it because it feels safe and everyone likes it. Okay, we get it. Like it's good, fine, whatever. But things that have people really divided, those are the movies that I want to see the most. Well, it just turns out that this time we're in the correct side of the 57. Yeah, we are. I would agree. Yeah. I, th- I think, uh, I, and I'm with you, Carlos. I, I think a movie that you, this is, like I said, it's one that I was questioning, is this going to play well, but I think it's doing some interesting things. It's a really yeah. cool character study. In addition to it being a really fun, like rabbit hole film for a music fan. Um, you know, it's, it's particularly electronic music fans. So it's cool, cool to hear that you both uh, had a good reaction to it. And I think a lot of our listeners would too, because I know our listeners, they're, they're, they're thoughtful people who, who, who like uh, good character studies. So. Yeah. Because I, I, mean, well, I, I want to bring this up in our second half. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll explain how when we get there. But what is the lesson of the film? And the lesson is that creatives must create and creatives must learn from where they draw criticism. And this film just sets that ti- that tiny thesis up from the beginning to the end, and mm-hmm. I think does a great job in the ending. Anyway, yeah. we, we, we've, we've done it. Well, she's, she's a great character, too, because, you know, a lot of times you get, um, you know, characters that get... She never really doubts herself. I mean, it, it, I don't know. It's, I just think it's a really interesting film. R- really great. We didn't mention the, the filmmaker. This is his first feature, Mark Cullen, uh, or Cullen. I don't know. You know, he's French. Uh, but he's been a composer, primarily. I mean, he's obviously a nerd himself. He did the score for the film. Yeah. And uh, and and I think this was kind of a love letter from him to this part of music history that he's really attached to and, and that he loves. And in particular, female, um, you know, pioneers in electronic music yeah. and kind of wanted to make this as an homage to them, which is really cool to see. And I hope he continues making films because, again, I, I think I think showing some unique uh, approach here with with this one. I think he could do some cool stuff. No doubt. Yeah. And. Another thing that I really liked about it, which kind of piggybacks off something that Joe just said, is like, oh, so if this was like a biopic about somebody, it would have this like sense of like predetermination where like mm-hmm. the person like knows that what they're doing is great and it's groundbreaking and revelatory and that they just have to keep going and they're going to be successful and like they're going to change everything and then at the end of the movie they get some big multi-million dollar record <laughs> deal and they're the darling of the music industry and everybody loves them hooray and like thank god that this wasn't that movie like i i don't I mean, she does doubt herself a little bit at a certain point when the guy, like, says, like, oh, this isn't anything. Like, you can't do anything with this. But it's a very brief moment of doubt. And But I th- I think the reason that it's so good is because it's about a fictional character, you can have a lot more nuance to it. You can have a lot more, like, complexity of the character. Like, it's always kind of a battle of, like, this is what I want. Like, this is the sound that I'm going for. How do I do it? How do I get people on my side? How do I get them to understand what's going on here? And that this is what's going to be the, you know, the sound of the future. And that like conflict makes it a lot more interesting than just like, I have to get these people to listen to me, you know, like, cause that's boring. Like, you know, and that's the downfall of a lot of biopics, I think. Um, well, but- and it also has the freedom to kind of let us just believe that this character may not ever have had a breakthrough moment, yeah. right? Because this is, again, it's it's an homage to those who were pioneers and a lot of the people who try stuff first don't necessarily get famous off it. You know, even yeah. some of the figures that we've talked about, you know, Susan Chani, the uh, Laurie Spiegel comes up in the film. Like, th- they may be r- sort of appreciated now and celebrated now somewhat, but they were never chart-topping artists. They were yeah. not making stuff that was so you know the the fact that you know she she may never have had that kind of breakthrough but that's not really the message of the film i think back to what joe was saying it's more about she's clearly somebody who's just compelled to create and wants to do something innovative 
unheard before and, and make that work for her. So. Yeah. And she also has access to the equipment for as long yeah. as she sublets the apartment. Which is, yeah, guys, we, I mean, we can't put we can't put it off any longer. We're going to have to talk about this beer. It's our two hundredth. Yeah, and it's from uh, one of our four, five, maybe six, local breweries, and it's one of their annual local powerhouses, the Vicks Petite Strawberry Blonde, from B and J's Pizza and Brew House Brew Pub. Carlos, you said that. You were really looking forward to it. What did you think? I look forward. I I look forward to any strawberry blonde uh, beer of any kind. Um, I think that those two things are a great pairing. Um, I think I do think that this beer suffers a little bit from its use of extract, as opposed to like just dumping a bunch of strawberries or a strawberry puree or something into the fermenter oh, but they are using real strawberries no they're using an extract that's made from real vix poteed strawberries are they they're making that extract themselves from the strawberries i believe that might be the case okay because um, i know they i know they pick up strawberries and take them to the brewery because on on untapped um the picture that i sent you guys of it when you said you were having a hard time finding a description on their website, it mm-hmm. says uh, under their Vix Poteet, it's a variant of their two by four blonde ale with extract made yeah. from fresh strawberries from Poteet, Texas. Um, and I think that I understand why you would use an extract. Um, they have used it in other beers before, not a strawberry extract, but just extract in general to get a certain flavor. And sometimes it really works super well. Um, I think that you it would be better off going for a more subtle strawberry flavor in this particular style of beer than it would using an extract. I will say, you know... The, I've had it in the past, you know, as, as Joe said, this is kind of one of their, uh, their regular seasonal offerings whenever it's strawberry season, which is a short time here in Texas. Um, they, they, they get a batch of this, they make the extract, they create the beer. Um, and in years past, I've really enjoyed it. I feel like the recipe has gotten a little heavier. I, I, I feel like it was a lighter beer a few years back. I, and that may just be, again, that may be my palate. That may be other things, too. It may not even be their recipe. But drinking it tonight um, as, as we're you know having this discussion, it, it's resting a little heavier on my palate than it has in the past. There's more of a maltiness to it than I remember. Um, and, and the strawberry flavor is not quite as pronounced. Again, I'm, I'm totally willing to believe that, that these are palate changes on my part but I'm just not finding it to be the same beer that I once had from them. And I think that's okay, David. Um, sure. Whenever you watch a brewery do the same beer year after year after year, and B&J does several beers, special releases this year's version of this or that, you're going to have, you hope, years that are better and worse because you're watching an evolution occur. And I would say that for the Vix Poteet here in our town, here at our brewery, this year's is not their strongest offering. But I'm sure they know that already. And I'm sure they've already tweaked the recipe for next year's go around. Um, and, and no matter where you live, I mean, you want to watch your breweries evolve and you want them to hit, but you know that the true successes don't always hit. There's a miss from time to time. Uh, I hate to say it, but for B&Js this year, their Vix Poteet is a miss in as much as there have been stronger offerings in the beginning, in the past. And it's, it's not like a, it's not like a total whiff either. It's not exactly. Um, It's not a fail. It's just a, it's just a very slight underperformance. You know, I, I think in their Fluffernutter stout, there's some extract involved to get some of that flavor in there. Works brilliantly in that beer. Um, this one not as much and one thing i also would say is like i you know we said when we poured this beer and introduced it our 200th beer uh it's 7.9 percent that's a pretty high abv for a blonde no doubt. i'm expecting my blondes to sit at like 5.4 5.5 yeah. like somewhere right. around there you know and so i think just like dialed the 
grain and malt bill back a little bit, kind of bring it down a couple percentages to a lighter, crisper, uh, because David is right. It, it is also sitting a little heavy on my palate from what I would expect from a blonde. Um, but overall, I mean, it's not, it's not bad. It just definitely, I think if it were just a slightly lower ABV, a little lighter mm-hmm. beer, we'd be right on point with like what a strawberry blonde should be. And this is a beer that a majority of our listeners will never be able to taste unless they come visit our hometown. And these are those conversations that I think are so fun at a local level. The brewery put out there such and such, such and such. Have you tried it yet? And we're doing that, the three of us, for almost every single release that goes on in town. I admire B&Js for their corona response. I admire B&Js for for their landmark status as a local beer craft beer promoter for 50 you know, for 150 years it seems like yeah. i went to be in <laughs> i went to b and j's and my uh relatives would participate in their import club back in you know late the late 70s yeah they're the ogs but, for sure oh og yeah but and, and so anyway we're, we're we're clearly trying to make sure that we understand that we love all of our locals and uh even if it's not our favorite one that you ever did i mean i mean to. b&j's especially though because i mean they like the taps stay strong mm-hmm. the cool i mean like i've had i've had some good stuff there i mean they they were some of the first to get the ridiculous af in cans i think they mm-hmm. actually were the first place to get that in cans when saloon door started doing that i mean they've always been like the you know patron saint of craft beer here in mm-hmm. town and the pizza fucking smacks so, oh do the, so do the wings actually they have I some was really say fucking that good the, wings the wings are fantastic too. Yeah, and if you wings. ever find yourself in corpus christi you better get a hold of us because we want to drink a beer with you that's the All spot right. Yes, absolutely. So the the final verdict is B and J's. We love you, and and, uh, and we're going to keep drinking your beer. And this is a very drinkable strawberry blonde, if heavier than maybe you would anticipate. Yeah. So we're going to go into a break here. We're going to come back. We have, as always, another beer, another movie, and please join us. All right, so second half episode, that means second beer. We're going to get straight into it. And here it is, the tiebreaker, jumping out in front in first place for the most consumed brewery on beer in a movie over the course of 201 unique beers. Or uh, There might have been a repeat or two, but over 201 <laughs> beers. And it is Prairie Artisan Ales coming in first place with the Slush. This is a sour ale with strawberry, raspberry, lemon, and lime. It's coming in at a cool 6.1%. Um, fantastic can art, as uh, Prairie often has. Whether yeah, it's their do. can or bottle art, they usually kill it. Um, got into a little um, discussion, let's say with a guy in one of the beer groups that I am a part of who is uh, really coming for Prairie. Oh, they've gone to shit. They're terrible, blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, what fucking world are you living in, man? Like, <laughs> they, They've had some problems. They I have mean, had some I, problems. I saw that exchange going on, and I've not been on the receiving end of many of their problems, but I have heard bad stories from other people about certain beers they've gotten over. I mean, past- yeah, it, I... I I think that if it is that isolated that we have consumed as much from them as we have and have not really had any problems with their beer, that it's not a huge, huge, they're the worst brewery or whatever. It's just like margin of error at that point. I did have one. They had this like orange peel, like I think like hazy IPA or something. And mm-hmm. fuck, it was so bad. Um, <laughs> it was really, really undrinkable. Uh, I kept it in my fridge for when people came over and wanted to bum beers off of me, and I would hand them one of those. Uh, <laughs> but um, 
other than that one time, I haven't had anything from them that was like terrible or, you know, whatever. Obviously, some are a lot better than or some can be better than others, but there's not a huge mark. Anyway, I'm going on too long about this prairie. Uh, this is a sour from them. They're really known for their stouts, I feel, but they also venture into some of this other territory. Um, and so I'm excited to give this one a spin. Yeah. Yeah, this is. I was excited to see it uh, come into the market here, and as as Carlos said, great label art, and uh, yeah. So so let's sip on this. Well, we talk about um, our other South by Southwest selection, um, which was a documentary. So we we don't do a whole lot of documentaries on the podcast. In fact, we were kind of off mic going back and forth about have we even done documentary and we have we've done a handful of documentaries right did we count up like five or six over yeah yeah episode? something like yeah. that um but but it's fairly infrequent i mean we we love the uh um uh was it the was it the biggest little farm or the big little farm which biggest little farm biggest yeah. little farm yeah. um fantastic doc back last summer that uh we, we, we paired we paired that with food inc for a food-based right. documentary yes right. so that was that was a doc heavy episode, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, generally, and, and it's not because we don't love documentaries. I think all three of us have documentaries that we would uh, point to and say um, were, were very important to us, or, or you know, great filmmaking uh, is present there. It's just they don't get around as much. They don't. So film festivals are kind of a great opportunity if you ever attend one, because there almost always is a selection of documentaries that yeah. are in the competition. Usually, their own kind of uh, you know category and and it really is pretty great to get to see things that kind of dive into different topics that you might not see covered otherwise um and you know maybe we'll make it to some streaming platform eventually but probably won't play in your movie theater well Well, a a lot of time a lot of times i rely on the academy awards five best documentaries to get a list of some great documentaries that i hadn't heard about prior well and and david you're exactly right about the film festival thing um because i remember the one year that i went to the south by southwest film festival uh 2015 i think I saw this amazing documentary called 808 and it was about the 808 drum machine. And I mean, it had like, um, ad rock and Mike D in it. It had like all these, like I, it, you know, it had Africa Bambata. It had a bunch of like UK, like house producers. I think Kendrick Lamar was in it for a little bit. I mean, it had some like heavy hitting people in it and it was a really, really well done documentary. It was super, super good. And it didn't hit a streaming service for like four years after that. Like I didn't see anything about it for years after I saw that premiere at, I think it was the U S premiere at South by. Um, so, so yeah, it can be really difficult to get your hands on some of these, you know, some of these documentary films that make the festival circuit. I will say, since we're talking about a documentary, if this wasn't a South by Southwest centric episode and we had just decided to watch Le Choc de Futur uh, and paired it with another thing, I would I think that my go to would have been for the second half a documentary called I Dream of Wires. I don't know if you guys have ever heard about this film. It's a documentary about the advent and evolution of the synthesizer. And they talk with like Morton Sabotnik and Wendy Carlos and they talk about the invention of like the very first Moog Model 55 and then the Buchla and then the mini Moog Model D and just go on and on through the DX7 all the way into like Eurorack. They talk to Dead Mouse, like all these huge people. And it is a fantastic documentary about synthesizers. Um, so I highly recommend that to anybody that has an interest in that. But the movie we're no, talking fo- no, about... Folks. No, folks. The doc, the synthesizer based geek out did not just was not just contained to the first half. <laughs> Sorry, uh, <laughs> but the documentary that we are talking about today is certainly not about that. It is very different. Uh, I don't I don't know that I am emotionally equipped to synopsize this one. Well, it's it's a fairly simple concept. I mean, this is so the the title of the film, TFW No GF, right? Is is uh, internet speak uh, a shorthand for that feeling when no girlfriend, right? That that so it's it's it was sort of a meme online that you know people would post this little phrase 
um, often with a picture of the the character Wojak, right? Am I saying that right? Wojak, Wojak yeah. Um, that you know, this kind of sad-looking face, this this you know, this idea of a lonely guy who can't get a girlfriend, and the the culture that has built up around that online, in the sense that there are lots of people who, as this documentary explores through various aspects of modern life, have found themselves in situations that they feel disconnected and unable to sort of properly socialize. Um, and, and again, th some of that is on them, some of that is on technology, some of that is on their family lives, some of that, you know, the, the film in various ways explores kind of what leads to this. But another term that gets used to describe this culture is incel, right? This sort of involuntarily celibate uh, community of, you know, men who, young men who feel sort of like outsiders, that they aren't able to find female partners and they sort of um, self-isolate. They spend a lot of time on message boards, in particular 4chan, that, that's sort of the one where, where this really took off and, and where this dot kind of, you know, spends a lot of its time. Um, and, and the idea there's like this kind of toxic circle jerk <laughs> that goes on in these kind of spaces where people feel terrible for themselves and and perhaps for each other, but a lot of it isn't about compassion or sympathy. It's more about just, you know, I don't know. What, well, what did, what did you guys get out of it? But that's okay. the basic idea is let's look at this culture that's emerged of young men. Who feel and, like, and let's do it. And let's do it by, by profiling six real people that had existed in that 4chan incel you know, TFW, no GF life mm -hmm. for a period of time. And then let's revisit them all two years later. Right. So I'm so glad that this marginalized group of straight white young men have their moment in the spotlight because that's what they needed. They have it so hard. And, and I mean, this documentary is fucking ridiculous, man. Like it is, I mean, 4chan First of all, and and for me, watching this was really interesting because I spent a, not a lot of time, but like a good amount of time on 4chan, like as a young man, um, like in high school or whatever. It was before the incel thing. It was definitely like still like a lot of trolls and like a lot of like trying to shock people with like whether it was like graphic violence or like whatever. And then there was like the whole boxy babe phenomenon and like just... It wasn't, it was bad, but it wasn't as like truly terribly toxic as it became in the early 2010s. And so watching it was really interesting, like seeing a lot of this behavior or whatever that I remember a little bit, but always finding it laughable, even like as a 15 year old or whatever. I was like, oh, these people are ridiculous. Um, but it's just like so ridiculous to watch these people behave this way like to see the guy who's like the pseudo intellectual philosopher fucking shithead um uh what was his name something hegel or like his name was a twist on a philosopher um i don't remember what it was fuck that guy uh but to see him like going to rallies and like trolling people and all these people like going on twitter to try to say the most offensive misogynist things and like you know all the guns and stuff and it's just like what are you guys doing like what are you ho like it's so funny to me how counterintuitive it is to be like oh i can't get girls to pay attention to me i don't know how to talk to girls let me be the biggest fucking piece of shit that i can be that'll get a girl to pay attention to me and it fucking works for one of them which is totally beyond me uh but also another thing i found crazy was i don't remember what the guy's name was but the most sympathetic character in this entire documentary is a guy from El Paso who wears a Confederate flag on his fucking jacket. Like, the fucking South Shall Rise Again f dude somehow is the most sympathetic character of all of the people that we see in this documentary. I guess the guy who ends up, like, working out and, like, bettering himself kind of towards the end, like, he's okay, but... Um, man, this is just a cesspool of, like 
terrible troll toxic masculinity like every bad thing that you can embody as a young man every like bad personality trait you can have as a young man is like fully on display the superiority complex all of it you know when we consider documentaries i mean there's seemingly a limited amount of tools that a documentarian has in their arsenal to create something that you know is either a interesting b widespread notoriety uh and those things to me is just my analysis are interesting characters the subjects an interesting subject matter and a point of view and not all of the times are all three things employed so if you think about i'm trying to think guys of documentaries that people know they may not like but they at least know them roger and me leaps to mind now you may not like michael moore's politics but you can't argue that there are interesting characters and subject matter in that documentary which makes it interestingly watchable even if you hate michael moore or another one is on netflix now watch it if you haven't uh, euro dreams of sushi you may oh, not even yeah. like you may not even like sushi you may hate sushi but the thesis of the film, the point of view of the film is let us show you what it takes to be the best in whatever it is that you're pursuing yeah. along with the. Yeah, no. Well, another documentary that comes to mind that kind of fits that same Euro Dreams of Sushi thing is is the documentary Psalm. I'm not a big wine guy, but watching these people like literally like sacrifice every part of their lives to become master sommeliers was fascinating. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you have that choice that every documentarian has is, is my literal voice going to be a character in the film? Yeah. And Michael Moore, Herzog, we know the decision that they typically make. Yeah. But in Euro Dreams of Sushi, who made the film is not part of the story. And to me, neither is, neither is that the case here. Because there's an absence of any kind of editorial point of view that you'd get from a Michael Moore. It's just a glimpse into the lives of six people that are involved in something that I am not involved in at all. So the question, David, I guess I'll give it to you because Carlos kind of let us know how he felt was, are these people interesting? Is the subject matter interesting enough to you? And is there a point of view that you can identify or not, not identify with? Is a point of view presented in the absence of the filmmaker's voice? Yes. I mean, I think there's always a point of view no matter what. I mean, even if you're not putting yourself out there, you're making a conscious choice to then sort of have the focus be on your subjects, right, more, more than you. Um, and I, I think, you know, I don't come down as hard on this film as Carlos does. I mean, there's something unsettling and troubling about it for sure, but I think that's that's accurate. I don't think this is at all putting them on a pedestal. I don't think it's a very redemptive story. I do what Carlos is saying there are a couple characters who seem to show some growth by the end of the film um, you know when they're revisited two years later and, the, and there is maybe a little bit of hope in there uh, but I think the the value of a documentary like this is to give somebody or some bodies a peek into a aspect of culture that unless you're they're doing this unless you're sitting on 4chan making these posts reading these posts unless you're having these exchanges it's pretty foreign i mean you maybe have heard the term incel you've maybe heard or seen some of the memes that have circulated there making their way out of 4chan and going further you know onto other platforms but um but unless you're spending the time like these guys are essentially you know carlos brought up that you know 4chan had always been kind of a hotbed of trolling but you know, this really kind of gets to this aspect of trolling and how there is this kind of nihilism that, you know, like, well, if I can't be a functioning member of society in the way I want to be, if I can't have this, whatever it is, the achievement, which given the title of the film, a lot of that has to do with them finding romantic partners. If I can't have that, then fuck it all. You know, like, then it's all a joke, and I'm just going to say whatever I can to provoke whatever response I can out of whomever is it, you know? And it's a sad statement. It's like, that's the choice that's being made, but it is a choice that's being made. And and I think that's where, you know, I didn't enjoy watching this film, but I felt like it gave me some insight into this corner of culture that exists now that I'm just not part of and I'm glad I'm not part of and I hope <laughs> a lot of the people who are in it find their way out of it but it's troubling right and we've had some people from this 
little you know culture act out and do some terrible things and and it, and it would be nice to think that there's a path out of that uh, for people and I you know I should say that I I don't think that the it's necessarily a bad film like I didn't find myself bored or anything like that you know it was like reasonably like well put together there were you know from a cinematography perspective it was adequate I just don't like these people. (laughs) It's just like there is a degree of this type of behavior that I personally cannot fathom how it is, how you can justify it in your mind so that it is acceptable behavior and that you think that this is okay, you know, and seeing these people that are as delusional as they are and think like, Oh, it's just jokes and blah, 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 you know, or like whatever bullshit that they're on is, uh, is, is troubling. I watched this movie with my 14 year old daughter and she interesting. Yeah. She, what a twist. She knew the lingo. She knew the words. She knew the definitions. These are all shorthand. But then two nights later, it came up at the dinner table because my son watched it, I guess, because after a conversation he had with his sister. And then we had this conversation about those kinds of people. The people, uh, Carlos, said clearly you're, you're, you're detesting as being represented in the film. But it is a real subculture. And I think there is a great uh, documentary coming out about how Internet and social media has changed us. I don't mean how we're marketed to, although that would be an interesting documentary also. But how like anonymity or relative anonymity of Facebook, but anonymity within social media, how it's brought out all of our narcissism. And some people aren't equipped to deal with narcissistic qualities that weren't supposed to be unearthed by this social media phenomenon. Uh, they're amateurs in the game of narcissism, of which I am an expert. This is not that documentary. <laughs> We're not there yet, but but I, I, I'm not coming down hard on it like Carlos did either. I found it kind of interesting. Uh, there were problems with it that I don't, I don't, it's not a high, high recommendation, but if you see this come across your life, give it a shot. I would say, yeah, I would say watch it. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I think this is, yeah, this is not a film to go to if you're, uh, if you're looking for some, uh, light entertainment or even just, uh, you know, some, some easy diversion. Like this is a film to give you some understanding of this, you know, as, as Carlos has said, like not pleasant aspect of human culture that, that exists now. And that, uh, I think, you know, again, it, it, it's going to be a learning experience for a lot of people. And then if, I think for those who are in it, you know, whatever, I'm not talking to them. I don't think there are audience. But, but yeah. you know, if you're listening to this, you, you know, you're going to learn something coming out of this. It's not going to feel good, but but I think it's something that's kind of important to know about. And if you are our audience, please send us the worst memes of us that you've made. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, you're asking for it. You really are. Um, but I, you know, as uh, as much as it may seem that I was very negative and harsh on this documentary, I don't think that it is a bad movie. I don't think that the film is bad. I think that the people in it bother me. <laughs> what do we think about the beer? Solid, solid, solid. Uh, you know, any reputation that prairie has of missing the ball from of missing the mark from time to time this is not it i thought this was fantastic a solid ipa and a very good play a favor and a very good flavor profile uh i could taste every bit of the strawberry raspberry lemon and lime i got there how uh how drunk are you that you thought this was an ipa Did I say IPA? <laughs> oh, sour. Yeah, that's sour ale is what I meant to say. You did yeah, say IPA. Oh, that's just what I'm going to have as soon as we turn off the microphone. El Chingon. Uh, number 202. <laughs> uh, right. I'm there with you, Joe. Uh, I'm really enjoying this. It's really light and effervescent and just, you know, easy. I mean, it's interesting, though. I will, I will say, if anything, I'm a little bit thrown off by the name Yes. Uh, the name Slush, especially given the current popularity of, I guess, I guess what are we calling them, smoothie sours or, you know, wh- whatever these, uh, you know, sort of 
uh, sours that incorporate tons of puree. Th that's kind of when I hear slush, I'm kind of thinking like, oh, this is going to be like a bunch of fruit puree in my glass. It's not that. It's very um, light, effervescent, a lot of fruit there. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely enjoying that. Very crisp. Um, yeah, I, w I wish, I hope we continue getting this. I don't know how widespread this is, if this is something they just did one off or if they're going to put this in their regular lineup, but I'd love to think I could get this all through the summer. Oh, definitely all through the summer. That would be amazing. Um, I, I agree with both of you um, in different ways. It is a very, I think, good beer. Um, but I also agree with David. It is inappropriately named. There is not a lot of slush happening in it. It is a pretty straightforward sour. Um, none of that few, uh, fruit puree uh, thickness or anything like that. Um, but nonetheless, still very delicious and a perfect sit on the porch outside during the summer um, or hopefully at some point when things get more quote-unquote back to normal a beach beer or you know a lake beer or whatever body of water is in your area um and at 6.1 percent i mean it's like i mean it is a sour so it's not something you're gonna just be like tossing back willy-nilly it's a slower sipper for that reason but it is still light and refreshing and at 6.1 percent could get you pretty pretty lit after you know a couple of them so that's always nice too um but uh but yeah, um, would recommend if you have access to it. I didn't it, even think of get it. misnamed beer until y'all brought it up. Yeah, it's not super slushy, but it is very oh, delicious. I, I intend on go buy, going to buy this to get some in my refrigerator. Good call. Thanks for bringing this one to the table, Carlos. Yeah, no problem. As soon as I saw that um, something called slush was on our shelves in town, I had to go get it. <laughs> uh, nice. And I went, and I also uh, picked up from Prairie... Uh, the uh, stuffed stout that they do, which is a bourbon barrel aged stout with cacao nib, vanilla, and Oreos. Um, and I would have gotten that for the show, but it is a $15, 12 ounce bottle. Uh, so that, that is a very expensive beer to get three bottles of. That one was pretty good. And they also had one, uh, a stout that was um, conditioned on coconut, cacao nibs, and marshmallow. Uh, that one was very sweet, um, as dessert in a glass as it gets, uh, but was also very delicious. So there's been some, some good prairie stuff creeping into our, uh, our market recently. Fifteen um, $15 for a single beer. That's only $5 less than watching the hunt. That's true. <laughs> that's true. And that single beer was almost 15%. So that's some bang for your buck as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I'm on my way. <laughs> well, this has been, uh, I think, a pretty, pretty great episode of beer in a movie. Uh, and we, you haven't even mentioned the idea of the idea that we have created that when we can finally get in the same room together, we're going to invite our friend Harold Ramos from the year end episode and get really wasted. Yes, that's true. Uh, that now that's going to be an episode right there. Mm -hmm. I, that is something we're not going to say what the episode is or the movies or what it is exactly subject matter wise that we're going to tackle. Cause we want to, uh, leave some anticipation for that one, but boy, we don't know when it's going to happen that too, but that one is going to knock your socks off listeners. Let me tell you, um, if you want to speculate about what that episode is going to be about, uh, what the content of that episode is going to be, or if you want to talk to us about your, uh, South by Southwest picks that you watch. Maybe you watch different ones than the ones we watch. Or maybe you watch the films that we watch because you saw us post about them and wanted to be up to date for this episode. Either way, let us know. Uh, Twitter, Beer Movie Show, Instagram at Beer and a Movie, Facebook.com slash Beer and a Movie TX, Beer and a Movie Podcast.com is our home base. You can find a link to listen to all of our past episodes absolutely for free. Uh, at this point, this is, I think, episode 89. So that is almost 90 hours, probably actually a little over 90 hours of podcast listening to get you through your stay at home time. 
Um, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. We know you're going to give us a five-star rating, but leaving us a review telling us what you like, what you don't like, what you want to see more of in the future helps us out a great deal. We would very much appreciate it if you did that. Uh, and I think that more or less wraps it up. Send us some beer uh, if you would like. Send us your memes. <laughs> uh, Bring them. Yeah. Joe wants the memes. Give Joe the memes. Um, but until next time. I dedicate this selfie to the little guy who will outlast me when I'm done. <laughs>